Chapter 21, Man and the Creeds. John J. Moment, in his study of the creeds, had a chapter entitled, Man in the Creeds. In a heretical exposition, Moment expounded the universal fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of all men, and the divinity in all men, declaring, The effort to exalt Christ by minimizing the divine in our common human nature is much of a kind with that of an earlier day when the church went even further in degradating man in order to magnify the grace of God. This process began in the 5th century with Augustine in the course of a long and bitter debate with an Irishman named Morgan, better known to history under his Latinized name of Pelagius. Pelagius contended that every man has his destiny in his own hands, that any man is capable of rising in his own strength to moral perfection. Augustine, in his protest against this over-optimistic view of the race, finally, to his own considerable embarrassment, found himself defending the proposition that apart from the power of the gospel there is and can be no good in any man. It was Pelagius's opportunity to recall the church to its earlier faith, that not only is there good in every man, but that good, wherever found, is God's gift of himself, and in the most literal sense divine. We are indulging in no figure of speech, but speaking quite literally when we say that in one or another of the saints of history, in one or another of our friends, we recognize a divine presence, and this, after all, is only another term for incarnation. As against the sovereignty of God and predestination, Moment was anxious to preserve man's liberty, the belief that every man has his destiny in his own hands so that man is essentially his own savior, himself divine, and therefore a kind of incarnation. Moment was a minister in the Presbyterian Church, USA, but still essentially both a Pelagian and a humanist, although a graduate of Princeton University prior to Wilson. Another humanist, non-Christian, is Dr. Sayas, a psychiatrist who is anxious to preserve human liberty against the dangers of psychiatry. Dr. Sayas' able critiques of psychiatry, of the concept of mental illness, which he terms a myth, and of the relationship between psychiatry and the law, are of great value and deserve a wide hearing, but his concept of liberty, while noble in intent, is weak in practice. Dr. Sayas has written, the individual can never escape the moral burden of his existence. He must choose between obedience to authority and responsibility to himself. Moral decisions often are hard and painful to make. The temptation to delegate this burden to others is therefore ever-present. Yet, as all history teaches us, those who would take from man his moral burdens, be they priests or warlords, politicians or psychiatrists, must also take from him his liberty and hence his very humanity. A humanistic psychiatry must, therefore, repudiate its seemingly therapeutic mandate, the pursuit of which often results intentionally or unwittingly in moral tranquility gained at the expense of freedom and responsibility. Instead of trying to diminish man's moral burdens, such a psychiatry must aim at increasing his powers and so making him equal to his task. And what is this task? No one has stated it better than Albert Camus when he wrote, the aim of life can only be to increase the sum of freedom and responsibility to be found in every man and in the world. It cannot, under any circumstance, be to reduce or suppress that freedom, even temporally. This statement quite 
clearly reflects the fact that Dr. Sayas is the product of a Christian culture, and his humanistic faith and goals are conditioned by that fact. He wants liberty and moral responsibility. The choice, as he sees it, is between obedience to authority and responsibility to himself. At this point, Dr. Sayas is playing games with language and with himself. To be responsible is to be answerable to someone or something, to a law or authority beyond oneself, to which we are accountable. Responsibility to himself means that man has no responsibility. He is free to do everything he pleases, and his every whim is his law. Beyond pleasing himself, man has no law. But if Dr. Sayas protests that he means by responsibility to himself certain standards of conduct and moral law which man must conform to, then those standards have been made into an authority over man which man must obey. Dr. Sayas has then asked us to choose obedience to authority. He has simply chosen a humanistic authority in preference to God. Dr. Sayas is right in declaring that the individual can never escape the moral burden of his existence. By this statement, he has asserted the moral force and authority of a law transcending man. Sayas further insists on the moral necessity of man to be free. But if man is only responsible to himself, and there is no law beyond man's will, man has no responsibility to be free. Man can, if he chooses, be a slave or a free man. Either choice is valid if it is his choice. But Dr. Sayas has equated liberty with humanity, and to take from man his liberty is to take hence his very humanity. Apparently, Dr. Sayas has a special revelation which makes liberty the definition of man, because otherwise his humanism permits no definition. Man is man, and whatever any individual man is, that which he chooses to be defines his life, and the sum total of meaning. Humanism is logically total anarchism, as Marx saw, Pragmatically, Marx chose total collectivism as the alternative and as a more practical way of denying God's law. Moreover, Dr. Sayas implies that unlimited liberty after Camus is man's true destiny, but man's true destiny, as biblical faith asserts, calls for limited liberty and limited power. Since man is man, it cannot be otherwise. Can man reverse the time of his birth and return to a past age? Can he choose to be a chemist when his aptitudes are only to those of a clerk? Can he at will determine the time of his death or the state of his health and finances? Man is at every point limited in his liberty. Because man is a creature, man's only true liberty is a limited liberty, and his only true power is limited power. Man is not free to be a god, because man is a creature. Man's freedom is to be that which God made him to be, and man is at all points and in all things answerable and accountable to God. It is man's sin that makes him seek an independence from God, and this quest is not only a flight from God, but also from himself, because man is God's creation, and every fiber of his being witnesses at all times to God. Dr. Cornelius Van Til has pointed out that if man the sinner could find a single button in the universe which to press would give him an experience in independence of the triune God, man would only and always press that button. But no such button exists. Man is inescapably the creature of God, and therein is his liberty and his glory. The creeds and councils, by their unswerving insistence on the sovereignty of God, assert thereby implicitly and firmly the creatureliness of man. In this faith is man's only hope. 
David in Psalm 8 sang with delight of man's role, by faith, under God. The destiny of the redeemed man is great. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Psalm 8, 6. Man was created to exercise dominion over the earth, under God. In Jesus Christ, man is regenerated to fulfill his calling. But man, apart from God, is nothing. For man to seek and escape from God is to seek the impossible. Man cannot escape from God, who is omnipresent, nor from himself, who is God's creation. As David said, If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Psalm 139, 8. There is no possibility of escape, because there is no other universe, not a single fact or atom not created by God. There is no hiding place nor covering from God, so that the existentialist dream of escape from God into a freedom from God is a myth. Man does appear, however, in the creeds, and very directly and simply, I believe, and even this appearance is by grace, the prevenient grace of God. Man was called into being, together with the whole of creation, by the creative word and power of God. And man is recalled into the presence of the triune God, and into communion with him, by that self-same, regenerating and creative word. The nature and destiny of man is to be a man under God, to exercise dominion over the earth under God, and to triumph over sin, death, and the enemy in Christ. Every attempt to put man in the creed is an attempt to abolish God, but which, in effect, abolishes man. Thomas J. Altzer, in defending his death of God theology in a debate with John Montgomery, said, The Christian can rejoice in the death of God because he is free from any kind of ultimate norm and therefore is released to live fully in the present. He is liberated. Altzer here reveals clearly the motive force of his school of thought. It is first the old satanic temptation, man's original sin to be as God, to be the knower or determiner of good and evil, of ultimate norms, Genesis 3.5. Therefore, man wills the death of God in order to make possible man's own birth as God. Second, man identifies liberty and liberation as freedom from any kind of ultimate norm. Man lives then in a moral vacuum, a world rendered totally void of God's ultimate norms, and antiseptically sealed from God. Third, man is then free to create his own norms, to be his own ultimate norm. This can be gained either through anarchism, in which each individual man is his own ultimate norm, or through total statism, in which the collective man's will, as embodied in the dictatorship, is the ultimate norm. The result is not the death of God, but the death of man. Anarchism, as Marx recognized, can only destroy man and society, but totalitarianism of this variety, in particular, is also destructive of man. First, man then has no appeal against injustice or against his own failure and sin. Since man is the ultimate norm, what appeal has man against himself or what source of help? If the ultimate norm is the state, then he has no appeal against the state since the state is then God. The result is absolute tyranny. The tyranny of the psychoanalysis is that it gives man no escape from the infallibility of the unconscious, because man is then governed by the unconscious. Wherever humanism locates the ultimate norm, the result is the same, total tyranny. Second, a burden of infallibility is then placed on sinful man and his sinful state. The ultimate norm is the individual or collective man, and an ultimate norm is an infallible norm, because there is no norm over it by which it can be judged fallible.
As a result, no progress is possible, since no concept of higher or lower, better or worse, can be applied to an infallible norm. Third, the only way in which progress can be visualized is by creating a transhuman or macro-human norm, one which makes it possible to surpass man. In terms of evolution, this means the abolition of man. Man, it is held, is to be a single cell in the new life form of the future, macro-life, so that the individual man will be of no more value than a cell of skin, hair, or fingernail, and is readily subject to squeezing as part of a pimple, shaving as unwanted hair, or trimming as an unwanted length of a fingernail. Yet this concept of man as a single cell of the macro-life is seriously considered and planned for. When man becomes the object of the creed, when man is in the creed, the result is the abolition of man. The salvation of man is to declare the biblical creeds, to confess the triune God, and to find in him salvation, liberty, and life. When man declares, I believe, he becomes the confessor of God's glory and God's truth, and the recipient of God's grace and prosperity.